There are more than 250,000 unsolved murders across the United States. This is a national crisis, and there are thousands and thousands of families who have no answers about who killed their loved ones. Using advances in technology, crowdsourcing, and good old-fashioned boots-on-the-ground investigative work, follow American Military University's cold case investigative team as we work to break the case for one of those families. This podcast contains details and descriptions of actual homicide victims and their injuries, including sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Break the Case. The riskiest thing that person did besides killing her is taking her out of the house. Exactly. And again, you got to go back to that suspect list. Who has the motivation to do it? Whoever did this. To them, the risk of moving that body outweighed the risk of someone discovering the link between them. Right. Very few people that meet that criteria. And we're thinking, okay, who's going to pick up that piano leg? It's got to be somebody that lives in that home, is familiar to that home. It's not a stranger. Nobody else is going to go into somebody else's home and pick up a piano leg and use that as their weapon. So maybe somebody in the family. So every night I'm on Facebook and I'm digging through all of his family members, trying to find their Facebooks. So we can really map it out and see where they are now. And I come across William. The sociopath or psychopath killer doesn't have a conscience. 14 years later, there is a point where uh, you've got to try to figure out how do you how do you bring that emotion back out exactly. of somebody, uh, and I think that's what you're trying to do. Exactly. Right? We have no idea why his cousin showed up on a random Monday morning. He's from Texas. He's in Arkansas for whatever reason. He shows up there and he hits her. He claims to hit her multiple times in the head with a piano leg, and then he goes and dumps her body, cleans up the mess, and drives back to Texas. None of this makes any sense at all. In our last podcast episode, listeners heard some audio from the very beginning of my involvement in Rebecca's case in February 2019. Over the next 21 months, George and I took every possible action we could come up with to help uncover new clues and information and ultimately help find Rebecca's killer. We met with the Arkansas Lieutenant Governor and the FBI in Little Rock and requested assistance from the State Governor and Director of the ASP, Bill Bryant. The last two requests went essentially unanswered. We appeared on several podcasts to discuss Rebecca's case and, probably to their annoyance, hassled every news outlet in Arkansas we could get a hold of. George and I also started a Facebook discussion group, established a $50,000 reward fund, bought a billboard to advertise that reward, and spent countless hours developing sources and gathering information, which we sent to police. Finally, in November 2020, a man named William Miller was arrested for Rebecca's murder. He is the cousin to Rebecca's boyfriend at the time of her murder, Casey. A few months after the arrest, my husband and I traveled to Arkansas to meet up with George and Dr. Gould, Rebecca's father. One of the first things we asked Dr. Gould is if he'd ever heard the name William Miller before his arrest. No, the name was was completely new to me at at the point in time when, uh, when I was called and there was an arrest made. So I had no idea who this fellow was. I'd never heard his name before. 
Um, I knew that there had been a, uh, a description of a vehicle mm -hmm. that was never really uh, tagged as being belonging to any particular person. Now, the state police may have had that tag from the very beginning. I don't know. But what I do know is that um, anything dealing with this fella uh, at the time of the arrest was completely new to me. So I had to go back and, and search my, my own memory as to, okay, was there something that uh, kind of would have led me off in that direction? And I can't think of one thing that would have led me that way. The topic soon switched to the investigation that was conducted over a 16-year period and the frustration surrounding the ASP's refusal to release any information on the case. I felt at the point in time where, where especially when Jennifer became involved, and George, you and I have been involved from the very beginning, mm -hmm. but uh, at that point in time, uh, it should have been an open field. Absolutely. You know, there, there shouldn't be anything hidden at that point. And that's probably my biggest argument for putting together some type of a Rebecca law. Um, other states have it, and if you weren't so strict on it that you kind of cuff the hands of those people that are in law enforcement, there's so many good people in law enforcement, yes. not bad. Um, but you get a bad egg. You get somebody with tunnel vision, as we had in this case, mm -hmm. because it was tunnel vision from the start. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and it's that tunnel vision that took a case that should have been solved within the first 30 days, 45 days maybe. Within and, the first week. Yeah, but I'm, I'm giving a little bit more <laughs> leniency here than, than you are. <laughs> I know, right. Than you are. Um, and and drug it out to, to 16 years. When in fact, even at year four or five or six or seven, had they opened the book a little bit, I mean, they fought me tooth and nail on getting an autopsy report on my daughter. Right. You know, yeah. let alone just having access to other things. Everything in the, in the forensics, I was denied. I don't want to mislead um, anybody in the public that's listening to this. I think law enforcement does a fantastic job 90% of the time. They're human. You know, and why not act human? So if you're if you're human, you'd you'd take a look at your organization and you'd you'd listen to other people and you'd say, you know what? Maybe this case needs another pair of eyes, or maybe this case needs another investigator, because that's what we were screaming and yelling. There was one person with that file for 14 years, mm -hmm. and it was like it was their file, belonged to nobody else. Don't touch it. And by the way, that file is actually owned by the public. Most people don't mm -hmm. understand that. Uh, police officers are agents of the government. It's a government agency. Every document in there, we own. And so for them to keep that, especially from you, I mean, it's one thing to keep it from me. I'm a journalist. You know, yeah. Jennifer is a criminologist is basically what I yeah. would characterize you as, in, especially in this frame of reference. But to keep it from you is outrageous. And we think? provided them the best opportunity on earth, which was the VDOC Society. Yeah. And it's it's also offensive for them to even think about turning down that opportunity, but continue to have the yeah. confirmation bias and accuse a totally innocent man. We discussed the information that we've been privy to that provided indication of William being in the area the weekend of Rebecca's murder. From what we know, there's at least two tips police had that very first week that could have or probably should have led them to William. One was that he was over there weed eating. I'd heard that. That was most likely him and his mom. 
And then the other one is that someone from the school did call in a tip and leave a message saying that Jeremy Miller had been pulled out of school suddenly and left. And that call was never returned. That tip was never followed up on. The police did not contact that person to follow up with them. It was a mid- phone call to... It was, I think it was like the tip line or whatever, okay. and they left a message. Yeah, there was a number that they had given out around that time. If you had information, you know, please call. And they called the number, and it was actually two people at the Mount Pleasant School District. They were always suspicious of this whole thing. This started in mid-September. Something yeah. changed dramatically because we were talking to people all over the place, and people were starting to freak. And the only thing we can come up with, and we, we know for a fact that one of those, it was either administrator or a teacher, actually went into Mike McNeil's office. As a reminder for listeners, Mike McNeil is the investigator who was newly assigned to Rebecca's case in early 2020. Okay, he reached yeah. out to me just before, a couple of days prior, and then he said, I actually know where Mike McNeil works, and I'm going to go to his office. And I said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And then I got the same tip from a totally separate person the next week. And I was like, because at first I was was like, okay. Then when I get a second tip, I mean, this is just classic source running. You get two of the exact same specific tip from two people who don't know each other. I was like, oh, we got to follow up on this. I remember I was walking But Mike was doing the exact same thing. I was at the park walking when you (laughs) called me. I was like, uh, what? And, you know, Mike obviously has access to school records and he went to the school and went through those records. We know that. And so he was doing the same thing we were, but he just had more access, which... Is he should, you know. The first person that came to me with a tip in September, he said, um, I never bothered to go to Dennis Simons with it because I knew he wouldn't listen to me. And it just, like, makes your heart sink. That is the epitome of the worst law enforcement right there. Like, yeah. the public should not feel discouraged to go to a law enforcement officer with a critical tip, what yeah. turned out to be the critical tip. And that information was there all those years. I mean, this is yeah. ridiculous. Like, what's the yeah. actual goal here? The goal should be solving cases, not yeah. not taking credit, yeah. uh, not I'm more powerful than you because I can keep this from you. Well, that's literally what mind. happened. <laughs> I mean, I'm just keeping so. this from you because I can, which is never a good reason. I'm to the point now where I don't know if holdback ever helps. I know. I've wondered that I, too. I, that's the term, you know, holdback. We'll hold it back so the, the killer will tell us what happened. I can't find a case where that's ever helped. I've looked. <laughs> And it doesn't ever seem to help. I mean, would holdback have helped in this case? Oh, it didn't help at all. It didn't I mean, help at all. We, are, we can basically prove that. Yeah. And yeah. Had they released a lot of information from the beginning, so many people would have been involved. It exactly. would have been solved, not maybe by law enforcement, but by other people knowing what to begin to look for. Yeah. Yeah. If they put out the tip about the blue car, like, did and, anybody else see this blue car yeah. that weekend? Yeah. And if there's a video from Possum Trot, which I don't think there is, why wouldn't you put that out so that the public knows what she was driving, what she was wearing? That's a normal standard procedure. Yeah, and you and I talked about that I mean, the week that this whole thing mm-hmm. happened. Why wasn't the media notified? That's the thing yeah. you do. And you know what's funny to me? Who's getting all the credit for solving this case now? Mike McNeil. Not you, not you, not me, not Catherine, no one else. AK, no one else who's been involved. Dennis Simons, no way. You're going to get all the credit anyway. Yeah, so who exactly. Cares if, You're going to look who cares if Jennifer comes in yeah. and does all the work? She I'm wants just... to be an advocate to, for these victims. That's mm-hmm. her whole thing. I never wanted my name anywhere, actually. I know. I kept having <laughs> like, to put it in there. Kept... <laughs> <sighs> yeah. I'm like, no, I'm not ever going to be on a podcast. I'm not doing that, George. I'm not doing that. <laughs> but there came a point that. where we had to step it up. Like, I, I was getting a little 
I know. fearful last year because I, you know, I had this plan like escalate, 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 but then I was like, man, I'm running out of ideas on how to keep the pressure on. Doc asked me in October of 2016, you remember this, you said, what can we do? And I said, doc, there's only one thing. There's the velvet glove that you've used for all these years. Now it's time for this media sledgehammer. You just keep pounding them and pounding them. And we don't know that any of this directly led to the arrest of William Miller, but it happened. Yeah. I think what it, what it did lead to was uh, bringing in Mike though. Yeah. Because there were, there were so many complaints. They never told you specifically, though, why? No, um, just that, remember when I filed a complaint? Mm-hmm. You filed a complaint. Catherine filed Catherine a complaint. Catherine did. Mm-hmm. Okay, we filed complaints. And I sent tons of letters. Um, <laughs> and then I think they sent the complaint back as unsubstantiated. Mm-hmm. I don't know, there was something. Yeah, yeah, you sent it to me. they stamped them like, sorry, but uh, we don't accept this. But it didn't matter, so because it still would have registered with him, and uh, and at some point, it, I'm sure it had to come from Mark mm-hmm. to say, you know, let's bring somebody else in. Look how yeah. quickly, relatively speaking, how a case this old is infinitely harder to solve than a fresh one. Obviously, it took him eight months. eight months because he it's not even been years, Doc. He, he's only been on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's been on nine, it nine months or so. It took him nine months to solve the case a cold case that was 15 years old yeah. at the time because he followed the leads. Even now, nearly a year and a half after William's arrest, we still don't know what solid evidence was uncovered that led Mike McNeil to fly to Oregon in November of 2020 and interview William. Did Mike tell you anything about like DNA or anything that, anything like that? I mean, just... No. I can't figure out what led them to William. This is hopefully the biggest question probably that'll get answered after the motive, but what do they have linking him to this crime? Because if they don't have some forensic evidence or something, I don't know how they're going to... Or somebody squealing on him. You know? Even so. There's only two possibilities. Yeah. They have some overwhelming piece of DNA evidence or forensic evidence they just found recently, all of a sudden it was like alarm bells went off. And that's possible. Science mm-hmm. is getting better by the minute. Or somebody came in and, and told the story, laid it out what happened. Because the thing that we can't figure out, Doc, they bring the guy in on a Saturday afternoon. He gets booked into the jail at 1.15 in the morning. Well, the booking process takes about 30 minutes. So what was going on for the six or seven hours prior to him being booked? 12. Okay, or yeah, supposedly twelve. They had him in questioning, and there was an actual confession. He actually confessed. That's the story, reportedly, but we don't have that. But we don't. We don't have it. If you look at that probable cause, he says on probable that's cause. That's not his confession, though. Right, right. That's, that's it's Mike's a, version of it. Yeah, it's a version of what so. he said, Doc. There's no doubt in my mind. I told Jennifer this. He is culpable in this crime to a degree, no matter what. I've seen these false confessions. He could be lying for sure about some aspects. He was involved, even if it was to the degree of helping clean it up. He was involved. There's no doubt in my mind. So, now, was he the actual perpetrator who actually pulled the, the figurative trigger? Don't know. But seven hours to get a confession or ten or whatever it yeah. was. His brother was apparently questioned for nine, what did I say the other day? Nine, nine. hours at the same time, which we had sort of suspected they're probably going to pull all three family members in at the same time because it wouldn't be wise to pull the mom in and then she's going to go alert her right. son, you know, or whatnot. Right. 
So mostly, and now we know that Jeremy was pulled in and questioned at the same time William was pulled in. So we assume the mom was too. But beyond that, we have, of course, no well, idea. Would that have been what went by on. somebody else there at the same time, or or was it? Should it should have been Mike. Mike. Should have been, because Mike he, was out there. So the other guy's right. isolated while Mike's working. With Could be, of, or he's got another agent questioning them yeah, at the same time, right, or he's yeah. going back and forth. Our conversation that day continued to circle back around to our speculation about what led police to William. Based on our research, William's younger brother Jeremy was attending Mount Pleasant High School, which is near Melbourne, at the time of the murder and was unexpectedly unenrolled from school a couple days after Rebecca went missing. Jeremy, his mom, and William reportedly left the state and moved back to Texas that week. It also appears Casey's younger brother, Corey, was attending the same school, and the two boys may have actually been in the same grade. It is really weird, like looking at his mugshot, I'm like, is this the dude I've been looking for all these years? I mean, seriously, are you the guy? But then the story comes out and it's like, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. So the, the younger brother uh, was how old when he was back in Arkansas? 15-ish. 15-ish, He was roughly the same age as Corey. So they could have possibly been in the same grade. And that's just another thing. Corey's at Mount Pleasant High School, too. Your cousin gets pulled out of school and you don't think anything of it. Come on. Yeah. Give me a break. Jennifer noticed this detail. They don't call it Casey's trailer in there. They call it the McCullough trailer in the PC. It's like, it's like they're, it's almost like they're trying to protect Casey. Mm -hmm. I may be wrong. It could be in the sense of he ratted William out. He spilled the beans. He's doing this. So now they're just trying to keep him as protected as they can for as long as they can. We'll find out, though. In hopes I'm that he testifies. We won't get to the truth one way yeah. or another. How, how do you find that out if he cut a deal? There's going to have to if, be some clues in that case. If it goes to trial, you'll know directly because he'll be on the stand. If he doesn't go to trial, if they plea deal it out, then anything he told them, it's not included in the police case file. At some point, they'll have to say, even if it's we received information from a relative mm -hmm. and laid it all out. And also, they'll have to lay out a motive. Because typically when you get a plea deal, motive is a part of it. You go into court and you say, Your Honor, I did this on such and such date. This is why. You know, normally that's what they do. I think there'll be enough details that'll give us the clues to who, if someone ratted him out to who did it. And the prosecutor's gonna have to be the prosecutor on his own can make a plea deal. Yeah. Yes. Despite family saying no. Yep. That's what you can. They certainly ought to consult you if they're even thinking about it, but the way they've handled this, I yeah. wouldn't expect them to. You know, the thing about it is, they may consult with you. I mean... They it, normally it, they, they do, they, Yeah, they, well, sometimes they don't, I mean, but they should. I mean, and even if it's getting down to the point of a plea deal, you might even just give the prosecutor a call and say, hey, I'd like to have some input on this. Mm -hmm. It's my daughter. I mean, really? I mean... I should have input on this. And who would disagree with that? Right. No one. Well, I, I plan on doing that. Yeah. In Arkansas, the law states that the next of kin of a victim must be notified if the prosecuting attorney plans to offer the defendant a plea deal. Unfortunately, the law does not require that the attorney ask for permission from the next of kin or even obtain their input on a plea deal. This is unusual because in most other states, the DA's office stays in routine contact with a victim's family regarding case updates and asks for their input on a potential plea deal. 
Despite Arkansas law, Rebecca's father made it clear that he expects to be notified and consulted if DA Eric Hance plans to offer William a plea deal. I mean, I emailed Mike last summer. I said, I will literally drive my laptop to your office and sign a non-disclosure agreement because I have so much information and I don't know what's important to you. And of course, he never responded. But I had I done that, eventually say quit emailing me. Yeah. Well, I mean, had I done what? that, he would have discovered I was talking to William Miller for a year almost, and that he was on our Facebook group. Yeah. He was who knows guys. what we could have done with that? Yeah. With him, because right. he seemed comfortable right. with me. Yeah. He would chat with me quite a bit. Yeah, it's like the ar- arsonist going back to the fire. Yeah, that's exactly his, yeah. his cousin on the other side made that exact analogy. He lied to us. Like, he joined our page, the Unsolved Rebecca Gould Murder page on Facebook. And Jennifer con- messaged me. And she's like, hey, uh, this is Casey's cousin, and he's trying to lie. And, you know, he was lying to us. Like, we couldn't figure out who he was. I'm like, that's weird. And he lives in the Philippines? Mm-hmm. It was just bizarre. And her and I talked about this, too. Like, he never directly defended Casey. Nope. And that was so strange. Like we went through all the messages and we're like, he doesn't really defend him. I mean, he, he, he offers alternate theories, a lot of alternate, maybe the killer wore gloves, maybe he didn't, stuff like that. But it's just really bizarre. But just that little, that little tidbit could have done it. While we were in Arkansas for those few days in May of 2021, my husband Jesse and I went back to Melbourne to revisit some of the key sites relevant to Rebecca's murder. We went looking for the house that William Miller's mom reportedly rented during her short time in Arkansas in 2004. It's just a few miles down Highway 58 from Casey's trailer where Rebecca was killed. As we drove towards the Possum Trot gas station in Melbourne, Jesse and I chatted about the geography of that road, as well as debated a few aspects of the last hours of Rebecca's life. We just made the trip from where William was uh, reportedly staying to the mobile home where Rebecca was murdered. What are your thoughts? It's pretty short. It only took us a few minutes. It's just a couple miles. And I can see why her body was not disposed of on Highway 58. We've actually seen several cars just in that short amount of time. And it's too busy of a road. There's actually quite a few houses along it. There's a lot of curves, kind of blind curves, and there's not any good place to pull off where you're not gonna raise some suspicion of why your vehicle's on the side of the road. There's no natural pull-offs. You'd have to go to a lot of trouble to um, hide her body off of Highway 58. Not positive what the ditches and the sides of the road look like back in 2004, but right now today, they're pretty well kept. I mean, they're mowed, and if you put a body right on the side of the road, it's going to be exposed and seen very quickly. So there's no good hiding places. You'd have to go to a lot of trouble and carry the body way back into a wooded area along here somewhere, but then while you're doing that, you're leaving your car on the side of the road at a place that's not a natural pull-off, so you run the risk of a passerby stopping to see why your car is there. As we continue on to the possum trot, the last time Rebecca was seen alive, it's a bit of a drive. It's curvy. It's, you know, five, six miles. If you had just broken up with your boyfriend or you suspected any trouble, wouldn't you want to just get out of there immediately? Yeah. I mean, who breaks up with someone for good and then goes back to their house and 
undresses and lounges around and takes a nap and does whatever. No, you're going to pack your stuff and get out of there. That's just very atypical to think that someone would, number one, break up with someone on the way to work on a very short drive, drop them off, and then go back to their house and hang out. That just doesn't make much sense. I'm not saying it's impossible. It's just unlikely. I think if Rebecca had broke up with him that morning, she would have just gone back to his house, packed her stuff. In fact, she probably would have had her stuff packed already the night before, knowing that this event was coming up the next day. And she just would have left. Her mom didn't live that far away. Danielle wasn't that far away. She needed a place to go Monday morning to wait on her sister to get ready. She could have gone to her mom's. She could have just gone to where Danielle was. She wouldn't have gone back to Casey's and got comfortable and took a nap and done whatever else that she supposedly did. I don't buy it. There is a report that her suitcase is missing. What are your thoughts behind that? That's a really tough question for me to speculate on because I can't understand what the suitcase would have been used for. I don't believe her body was put in it. Uh, They didn't dispose of the bloody bedding. That would be the most likely thing to put in a suitcase and dispose of. But that didn't go in there. Um, If it was used for anything, I suppose it could have been for the killer's own bloody clothes. But again, if you're getting rid of your own clothes, why aren't you getting rid of everything else that has blood on it? So I don't have a good answer right now on why that suitcase is missing. But the other thing that we don't know is what other items were missing from the house. I mean, the previous investigator said there was multiple items, one being the murder weapon, but he insinuated that there was more than that. So it's possible other items from the house that could not be cleaned were put into the suitcase and disposed of. But at this point, I don't really have a great theory on that. As we noticed driving by that the mobile home where Rebecca was murdered is being dismantled, how does that make you feel? It kind of makes me sad. It feels like a part of her is still there and trapped. And especially without justice after 16 years, the fact that the last place she was alive is being torn down and just abandoned and left in pieces just leaves me with a heavy heart. It's it's not deserving. She's not deserving of her memory being left like that, especially when the owners of the home have done nothing to try and bring justice to her and figure out what happened to her in their own home. Our next stop was the Possum Trot gas station and convenience store, possibly the last place Rebecca was ever seen alive in public. All right, we're pulling into the Possum Trot gas station. Uh, This is literally the last reported sighting of uh, Rebecca being alive. Several people have stated on multiple occasions that uh, she was filmed on camera being here at this gas station. I say that we're here, let's go in and grab some sodas. It's been 16 years, almost 17 years. Maybe the camera situation has improved since then. Maybe it's decreased. We're not sure. But I think we'll report on that after our stop. But honestly, if this was the last place she was seen alive, what are your thoughts coming onto this location? Pulling in here, I have the same feeling I had when I visited Ground Zero in New York City because I had been inside the World Trade Center building several times before they were destroyed in the 9-11 attacks. 
And when I was there, this uneasy feeling came over me because I was essentially retracing the steps of the last minutes of many people's lives. And in a way, I felt like I was breathing the same air, or at least occupying the same space they did just before their deaths. And that's how I feel right now, retracing Rebecca's last reported movements of her life, the last stop she'd ever make in public while she was alive. Well, let's go in and check it out. Cell phones, computers, vehicle data, security cameras, all digital evidence during the investigation of a crime. Today's investigators have to understand how to analyze and solve modern-day cases. That's why American Military University is on the cutting edge of criminal justice education with its Bachelors of Science in Digital Forensics. Classes are online with monthly program starts. Learn more at amuonline.com forensics. Okay, we just went inside the possum trot to get sodas, and we chatted with the cashier, who was really friendly. We didn't say anything about Rebecca's case or why we were there. But, Jesse, I'm asking you this question because you're an engineer and someone I consider an expert in audiovisual equipment. After going inside and looking around the building, what are your thoughts on the potential of there having been a camera outside this location back in 2004? What I can say is the soffit is like a metal pole barn style. I don't see any holes outside. Inside, there was a couple of cameras, but honestly, it doesn't look like they're connected or they've been used in a while. The probability of having a camera outside and then 16 years later not having a camera outside seems highly unlikely to me. I agree. And this always troubled me because Casey literally stated that video caught Rebecca getting out of her car, which would insinuate that there was a camera outside facing the gas pumps, or if there was a camera inside, it faced, I guess, out the front door or out the front window. But we didn't see any evidence of a camera being placed in any of those positions, right? I didn't see a camera placed in any of those positions. There was one on the cashier. Uh, But let's think back to the time. This is a system where you had to change tapes generally daily. Yeah. And were they changing tapes at the time? What are the chances of those tapes even being good? You know, a lot of surveillance video was lost because they keep using the same tape for a couple of years. Right. And the tape's no longer good. How many hours, realistically, do you think you could get on one tape? You can get 24 hours on one tape. That's why when you see these security cam footage of somebody that robbed a gas station, it's so grainy. It's such a low-quality video. It's taken at a certain number of frames, so it might be just once every second it takes a photo. But honestly, my opinion is... It's a low probability that she was caught on video. I totally agree. Standard procedure in a missing persons case is to release information on the last known sighting of the person. It follows that if police had recovered video of Rebecca at the Possum Trot on Monday morning, September 20th, 2004, they would have released it to the public in order to raise awareness about this person who was missing for a week and seek out help from the public. We know that no video was ever released, and after scrutinizing the current camera situation at the gas station, we're pretty convinced Rebecca was never captured on video, which means there's no solid proof of her being alive Monday morning. After visiting the Possum Trot, we drove through downtown Melbourne and headed down Route 9 to the Overlook, where Rebecca's body was found. 
All right, we just passed through Melbourne on Arkansas Highway 9, and we are at the pull-off where Rebecca's body was found. We haven't been here in just over two years. We walked this site again, we took some photos, we took some video, and now we're taking some audio. What are your thoughts about this location now? What strikes me is how quiet it is here, aside from a few chirping birds. We've been here, I'd say, about a good 30 minutes, and only three cars have driven by. But it is midday on a Sunday, and maybe traffic on the weekdays is different. It probably is. I also don't know what the traffic patterns were like here in 2004. But based on what we've experienced the two times we've been here, this is a much more ideal location to dispose of a body. Like, way more ideal than Highway 58, which is the road that runs by Casey's trailer that we were on earlier. But what also strikes me is the remoteness of this spot. I mean, she was down at the bottom of this embankment, which was accessible by vehicle back in 2004. There was actually a decently maintained dirt trail back then that you could drive down to get to the bottom of the embankment. But my question becomes, how many people would have known that that was possible to do? I feel like if you weren't from the local area, you'd have to be really lucky to just happen upon this spot, find this dirt trail that leads to the bottom of an embankment where you're totally concealed, and where you could drive in and out of with nobody seeing you. I mean, if you're just driving by this location on Highway 9, you can't see that dirt trail. So it just seems overly convenient to me. I agree. It's surprising how much this area has grown up. Like, the trees are much larger. It's hard to even see the view from the overlook. And we know from imagery back in the 2000s, what limited imagery that we have, that this pull-off is much wider than it was at the time of Rebecca's death. But that doesn't change the prospect of somebody being able to drive down to the bottom or being able to be secluded forever. When you were down at the bottom, I stayed at the top, and I literally could not see you, and I was looking for you. How hidden do you think somebody would be at the bottom of that embankment? Well, they're really hidden. I mean, no one can see you down there from the road above. Like you said, I had walked down that dirt trail and was standing down below, essentially in the vicinity where Rebecca's body was found, and I couldn't see you, and you couldn't see me. And we were like, what, 15 yards apart? Yeah. It's not because of how dense these shrubs and bushes are here now either. It's just the elevation change from the level of the road down to where she was found. So someone would have had to know they'd be safe down there with their vehicle and a body. Because even if a car passes on the road above, they cannot see you. The other thing we noticed is that if your car engine is off, you can easily hear an approaching vehicle on Highway 9 from a ways away. So you have good forewarning on a vehicle that could come up upon you. But if you're down at that embankment, whether it's daytime or nighttime, as long as your engine's off and your lights are off, no one's going to see you down there. So yet again, that's another reason that this is a very logical disposal site. But I keep going back to the same question about how does someone who doesn't live here find this location or know about it? The last time we were at this overlook, we, we drove some back roads from Casey's trailer to this location. Uh, we looked around on Google Maps. It, it was kind of difficult for us to find a way here. Do you think it's possible for somebody outside the area would have known these roads and where they came to? I mean, anything is possible, but do I think it's likely? No. We're from outside the area, and if we hadn't had Google Maps, we would have found ourselves probably super lost and turned around. These back roads are somewhat named, but there's hardly any street signs, if any. There's no directional markers, and 
unlike what we have at home in Colorado, there's no major train features to guide you. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with that term, what I mean is that where Jesse and I live in Colorado, we have the Rocky Mountains in full view from anywhere in the city. So no matter where you are, you have those mountains telling you that that direction is west. The mountains are to the west. Here, you get out in these wooded areas and you have no good sense of what direction you're heading. It's easy to get turned around. Other than the sun, really. But it's been raining off and on the entire time. I know. It's interesting that both times we've come here, it's been overcast and cloudy. So we haven't even had the sun to help give you any directional heading. So could William Miller have known these back roads and known this spot? I guess so. I mean, like I said, it's possible. And we don't know how many times, if at all, he came to this area prior to the murder. We do know his maternal grandparents lived in the area, so it would make sense that he'd been to Melbourne and the surrounding area previously. But not one person has come forward yet saying they ever saw William here before the murder or even the weekend of the murder. But again, that doesn't rule out the possibility that he had spent time here previously. And he could have visited several times and learned these back roads. If he'd been hanging out with his relatives who lived in the local area before the murder, they could have shown him the back roads. They could have all cruised around together and he might have remembered them. And upon needing a place to put Rebecca's body, maybe that knowledge came back to him. We're at the spot where Rebecca was found. It's a ways away from Casey's trailer where she was killed. And it's on the other side of Melbourne. Any thoughts on why they picked this location? Okay, so I'm glad you brought that up, because before answering that, I want to address something else here. And this has to do with the behavioral characteristics of a killer in the aftermath of a murder. So when a body is moved from the murder scene, it's almost always because the killer had a known personal relationship with the victim. And if they go to that huge risk and trouble to move the body, they aren't going to place that body in close proximity to the murder scene. Otherwise, their effort was probably fruitless or in vain because the body would probably be found pretty quickly. Also, investigators in Rebecca's case knew after examining inside the trailer, meaning the crime scene, that she had lost an immense amount of blood and probably did not leave Casey's home under her own power. If she had somehow injured herself badly and exited the home trying to get help, she'd obviously have been found close by. So in her case, whoever was in charge of the search party location really should have thought outside the box a little more and realized that Rebecca didn't leave the house under her own power. And so I'd say armed with that information, they should have at least considered other areas to search farther away from Casey's home. So going back to your question in terms of why this particular location was picked, obviously only the person that put her here can answer that. I will say when Casey confessed to his friend on several occasions, he stated he put Rebecca at this location because he thought it would be the last place police would look. And I will remind listeners that Casey hasn't been arrested or charged with any crime related to the murder, so it's possible his whole confession was false. Anyways, in a way, his statement was correct because police didn't look here for an entire week. But I also think the person that put her here left Casey's house with her in their vehicle and did not want to be on any paved roads. I mean, that's just a natural avoidance when you're moving a dead body. It's obviously way less risky to stay on dirt roads. And so the person might have just started out on that back road by Casey's and wasn't really sure where they were headed, didn't decide on a suitable location and ended up at the bottom of this embankment. But at that point, they were at 
you know, Highway 9, a paved highway. And so they knew the risk of being discovered was increasing by the minute. So this could have just become a disposal location out of convenience. But also to consider, it's possible this location held some sentimental value for whoever put her here. I tend to think that's unlikely due to the manner in which she was left here without any dignity and death, as we call it. But the way in which she was left, it doesn't indicate any remorse on behalf of the person who disposed of her body. So the whole sentimental theory we can probably dismiss. But again, I don't like dismissing theories till we can prove or disprove them for sure. Sorry, that was a really long answer to that question. But the disposal site always holds many clues about the killer, and it really should be evaluated in detail by investigators. We've been sitting here for a while now, and we're sitting in a rental vehicle with out-of-state plates. Only about three people have passed by. Nobody seems to have any concern that we're even here. It's a beautiful day. Um, It's calm. It's peaceful. You can hear the birds chirping, light breeze. It just rained. And despite all that calmness, it feels slightly eerie in a way. Is that how you feel too? Yeah, I do. You know, the most eerie thing for me is the thought that Rebecca may have driven right by this exact spot one day before she lay dead at the bottom of this embankment. On Sunday afternoon, she reportedly picked up Casey from work and they went south to Mountain View to the Harps grocery store there. And although this highway, Highway 9, is curvier than the Highway 58 one on the other side of town, which also runs between the two towns. If you're leaving from the Sonic, which is where Casey was working, this is the quickest route down to Mountain View. So there's a really good chance that she drove right by the spot where she was gonna lay dead 24 hours later. And that is just a really creepy thought for me to process. After spending a significant amount of time at the Overlook, we backtracked a few short miles to Melbourne and drove into the parking lot of the county jail. As we pull up here to the Izzard County Sheriff's Department, we literally know that Rebecca's suspected killer is behind that wall. If you could ask him a question right now, any question in the world, what would it be? <laughs> Why? I mean, that's, that's a really easy one. Why did you do this? There's absolutely no legitimate reason for this girl to have been killed. This wasn't, you know, some situation of self-defense where she was threatening somebody with their lives or anything. Whatever the reason was that led to this, I guarantee it was senseless and it was 100% avoidable. I mean, he made a choice to kill her. And there's two things that I can cite as fact that tell me that. One is the fact that she was hit twice If this was an accident, there would have only been one blow and then an attempt to get her some help. But she's hit two times, which means someone made the conscious decision to hit her more than once and then made a conscious decision not to get her medical treatment. And they had to know that she was still alive after the second blow because she did not die immediately, I guarantee it. I just want to know why. What was the motive behind this? And I think that's going to be the looming question that everybody is going to need an answer to. I don't even want to say we'll make sense of it because we won't, but at least to get a little bit of resolution, we need to know why and what actually went down and what led to this murder. And I I find it interesting that the Izzard County Sheriff is so close to the overlook that we were just at. 
I wonder what goes through William's mind every night that he has to be so close to where Rebecca was laid. And, you know, do you have any insight on that? I mean, obviously I can't put myself in his shoes or read his mind. I have to imagine the thought at least crosses his mind that he's just a few miles up the road from where her body lay or where he reportedly put her body. But, you know, based on him getting away with this for the last 16 years, it doesn't seem like he has a lot of remorse. He went on with his life, got married two more times, had four more children, traveled around the world, didn't, maybe this haunted him, maybe not. But based on the fact that he's pleading not guilty and appearing to take this to trial, it appears he doesn't care about answering questions for Rebecca's family or providing any sort of apology or trying to bring them any closure or resolution. From what I can tell, he's being very selfish and has been very selfish over these years. But again, I can't speak for him. I'm not in his shoes and I can't read his mind, but one day we are gonna get some of these answers. Though we'd covered a lot of ground in one day, we weren't done. We headed out of Melbourne towards the Coffeeville Cemetery, Rebecca's final resting place. So we're headed to the cemetery where Rebecca's laid to rest and we're about to meet some friends of Rebecca's, people that she never knew. They're almost like guardians of Rebecca in a, in a post-life. How does that make you feel, and how do you think Rebecca would feel if she could see how much outpouring of support she's had over the past 16 years? Oh my gosh, I think she'd be humbled just like I am. I never expected so many people to come to me and message me and show and express their love for a girl that, just like us, they never even knew in person. But to be able to have that empathy for this victim and her family members, it's been incredible. And although I hate the fact that an innocent woman lost her life in order to bring all these people together and create friendships that will last a lifetime, she definitely did that. And I hope that she realizes that her life was not in vain. It was unfortunately cut very short. But even after her death, many, many positive things have come out of this. Seeing firsthand that there are many people out there that still have a really good sense of humanity. So it makes me happy. And I think that sums it up perfectly. It's humanity. As we pulled in, Jesse asked me what was going through my mind. More than two years later, we're back at the cemetery where Rebecca is laid in rest. The last time we were here, we promised her that we wouldn't give up on her case, that we were gonna follow through and do everything possible that we could to find her killer and get justice and get some sort of resolution for her family. Can never call it closure, but I prefer the word resolution. And so we'll be back again to give her updates and keep letting her know that She's in our thoughts, and we're still not done, even though someone's been arrested, and we're going to get the rest of the answers. I also want to add in, as we arrived at Rebecca's grave, we noticed a rock sitting on her headstone, and underneath was the business card of Mike McNeil, who made the arrest in her case. 
And not only did he leave his card there, he wrote on the back, sorry it took so long. While at the cemetery, we met with three women named Karen, Diana, and Alice. All three of them are long-term residents of the Melbourne Mountain View area and recalled memories of when Rebecca went missing. I first asked Karen what she could remember about Rebecca's murder. I didn't know Rebecca's family or anything about it, but I remember when she was murdered that our sheriff was Bill Jason at the time. And at that time, a lot of the young people's names came out that possibly knew what happened. They talked about partying and things like that. But then within just a short time, within a month, it just went cold. I think they just ruled it a homicide, and that was it. And then it just went cold. There was a lot about it. I mean, just that she was murdered and... They didn't know who did it. Yeah, no. It. Well, I, I just don't think they really pursued it enough. I think something, something somewhere happened that it wasn't enough to arrest someone or that they were doing a cover-up. When I got interested was the podcast, the Helen Gone podcast. And uh, I think at that time that it would still be a cold case if that hadn't come out. And I think Catherine just opened a big can of worms. Then Jennifer and George and everyone didn't stop. And that's where we are today because they didn't stop. And we're not any of us going to stop until she has justice. And that's what we're all here for. Alice had previously told me about the dirt roads that lead from Highway 58, where Casey's house is located, to the overlook where Rebecca's body was found. I asked her to recall how she knew about this route, which essentially leads straight from the murder scene to the secondary disposal site. When I was um, a young parent, um, a group of uh, young parents and I, we took our children. It was Halloween, and we took them on a hayride. We took that road all the way to Highway 9, a lot of people know in Melbourne and Isra County that you can take that road all the way to Highway 9, a back road, and not even get on a highway. And you can end up at the Overlook, where Rebecca Gould was found. We spent a couple hours at the cemetery visiting with Rebecca and each other, and eventually it came time for us to part ways. Taken way too soon. Right. Her voice was yep. not taken, mm -hmm. and uh, we'll never, never, uh, never let that happen. And she brought people together literally from around the globe. So. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Did. Um, that is true. She really life did. was very important, even though it was short. And, uh, right, exactly. So. But we're not giving up. <sighs> nope. And we'll be yep. back. We'll be oh, right yeah, back we'll here. We'll be back in August we'll or whenever the next time. Right. But yes. Yeah. Yeah, I love you. We, I love you too. Love you Thank both. You guys for love everything. you. Thank you. Love you guys. Oh, I well, love you too. Yes. Get home safe. All right. You you too. Anything you need. Same here. <laughs> Same here. Trips. We yeah. like road trips. A couple months ago, on January fifth, twenty twenty-two, we lost one of Rebecca's biggest advocates, a woman named Kim Phillips. Kim was a long-term resident of the Melbourne area and actually helped search for Rebecca the week she was missing. 
She closely followed Rebecca's case over the years, eventually starting a Facebook group devoted to getting justice for her. Kim and I exchanged countless messages and phone calls over the past few years. She had a wicked sense of humor, a thick and hilarious twangy accent, and a laugh that had everyone she talked to grinning ear to ear. Kim's eyesight wasn't great, so she often sent me voice clips over Facebook Messenger. Now, I am so thankful she did, because I have a permanent record of her voice that I can listen to anytime. I went through all of her voice clips and selected a few that give listeners insight into Kim as a person and her dedication to Rebecca's case and victims in general. I want to get justice for I want people to do something. Don't just sit there and lurk and read and do nothing. People have to be proactive and do something. Don't sit around and wait for me or you or somebody to do something on her case. Get off their ass and do something. That's my point. In fall of 2020, not long before William's arrest, Polly, the producer of the Murder Squad podcast, reached out to Rebecca's father and then to me and George. Paul Holes, credited with identifying Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, and Billy Jensen, world-renowned investigative journalist, hosts the podcast, which has hundreds of thousands of followers. Like I said, I hope Larry will talk to him because it doesn't get much better than Paul Holes for a podcast. And Bob Ruff, the one that does that other podcast, because he's always got Jim Clemente and his brother on and Laura Richardson. Bob Ruff just had a TV show done over the West Memphis Three. And I messaged Billy. I know Billy said, I know, Kim. I know we're just, you know, because they were asking for people, um, you know, to take requests to cover cases. And I said, well, here we are right here. What do you want? You know, just let me know. He said, I know, I know, I know. I, I got it, I got it. And I said, well, I said, Jennifer said she had sent you stuff too, so don't hesitate to ask if you need more information on it because we'll get you whatever we possibly can. And I begged him, so I know he's sick of me. Most listeners know that William Miller was a member of the Facebook group George and I started for Rebecca, but he was also a member of Kim's page. After William's arrest, Kim and I went round and round trying to figure out what actually led police to him. It's like this. Okay, so he's got a friend coming to visit, and then all of a sudden they just vanish, you know, right after his girlfriend's missing, just disappear, you know, don't just up and disappear, and move to the Philippines or wherever he goes to. And Casey doesn't think to mention that to the police or anybody, that, hey, I had a cousin staying here, and or he was visiting with me, and then he just up and disappeared, you know, or, or say anything about it. They have to have something, because, I mean, he, he just came out of the blue. He's been on my page for over a year, over a year. They got to have something more on him than we know about. Whoever told that it was him had a way to give them evidence that they could test or something or give them reason to go after him. So whatever this person knew that told on him knew a lot of information that the police could use. Here all this time, people sitting around knowing about this shit, didn't bother saying shit to me or you or people begging for help, pisses me off. 
Several weeks after William's arrest in Oregon, he was extradited to Arkansas to appear in court in Izzard County before Judge Tim Weaver. Kim gave me her prediction on the upcoming court process. He'll go before Weaver really quick. If not before Christmas, he'll go before the first of the year because they've only got so many days, I think, if I'm not mistaken. He's got this dream team, supposedly, compiled, which doesn't matter whether his team's together or not. He just needs to say guilty or not guilty. And he'll say not guilty. I lay money on it. So when he says not guilty, then it'll be set for trial, which will be, what, 2021, 22, around here, two years later. Turns out all of Kim's predictions were correct. It's now April of 2022, and there's no hint of a trial occurring in the near future. In one message to me, Kim expressed her anger at how the investigation had been handled over the years. I've been on the phone from the governor all the way down on trying to get them to accept help or, or move on it or do, do an interview or something, an update on her case. And, I mean, there's proof of that. There's proof of all of that. I made tons of calls trying to get the case moving. And with Dennis Simon sitting there with the dusty files stuck on it, he wouldn't let nobody do nothing. Then McNeil comes in and, and then, you know, like, what, a year later, there's something happening. But he listened to people in the beginning, and he took information and would take your calls. So that's something that he would do. In late 2021, Kim was pretty sick. She had developed pneumonia and contracted COVID, but she was still in touch with me on a regular basis. And although I was concerned about her health, I had no doubt she'd bounce back like she always had in the past. She was still sending me voice clips, routinely, with her thoughts on the upcoming court proceedings and her continued frustrations with the case. I'm a, what do you call it, pessimist. I always think the worst of everything, and I think that he'll walk like most of the rest do and if he doesn't walk and does get a little bit of time it's going to be the minimum just to more or less satisfy the public but the public's not going to be satisfied there will be outrage on this if i'm still alive when this trial happens i will be there i will be there i've been on this since day one, I will be there. If I have to come wheeled in, I will be there because this is just disastrous. By late 2021, George and I were full swing into investigating another cold case, the unsolved murder of Debbie Williamson, who was killed in Lubbock, Texas in 1975. Kim was sick, but still wanted to contribute. Tell me what you're working on and who you're helping and what you're doing so I can kind of follow along. I know William's case is postponed. There's nothing going on with that. So just send me stuff that you're doing and I'll look. You never know what I'll see. Maybe some something I'll see if you're working on a case. Maybe I can help a little bit. Just know that I love you and I appreciate you checking up on me. And I'm sorry that I, I've just not been online, but I know you understand. But, you know, I love you to pieces, too, and I appreciate it. So keep me posted on what you're doing. 
I'll talk to you soon and stay in touch, okay? I love you. Tragically, Kim won't be at the upcoming court hearings or trial, at least not in person. There'll be a definite void without her there, but I'm thankful we could memorialize her voice in this episode. On March 29th, according to William Miller's online court docket, there was supposed to be a pretrial hearing. Several of us showed up at the courthouse in Melbourne, Arkansas, only to find out he still hasn't had his mental competency exam yet. Reportedly, that exam is scheduled for June 21st, and results from it may take up to three months to be written up and presented to the judge. So unfortunately, we're back in a holding powder on Miller's court proceedings, but we'll bring listeners updates once any are available. Rest in peace, Kim. Join AMU's cold case team and follow me, Jen Buchholz, and George Jared on our investigation into what really happened to Rebecca Gould. If you'd like to be a part of our effort and follow along, please join our Facebook group titled Unsolved Murder of Rebecca Gould. You can also follow us on Twitter at the handle BreakTheCaseAMU. This podcast is brought to you by American Military University. Narrated and produced by Jen Buchholz with co-host and investigative journalist George Jared. Senior producers Leachin Kranick and Andy Crow with support from Lisa Tanis. Sound engineering and editing by Harvest Creative Services. Special thanks to the Casebreakers, an investigative partner of AMU. Subscribe to Break the Case on Spotify, Google, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.